Welcome everyone to the inaugural episode of the Reading Writers Podcast. I am your co-host, Charlotte Shane. And uh, I am the other co-host, Joe Livingston. Um, Charlotte, this was all your idea. It's an excellent idea. Can you give our readers a little rundown on what they, they can expect? I I can. I So, of course, I was pondering, as one often does, that there are too few podcasts in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think what happened was, so I had had a burning desire in me to recite, if that's the right word, things I was learning while reading these history books. So I was learning fun little facts. You were reading about World War Two, right? I was reading about World War Two, and then I was reading about Rasputin. Mm. And I just, you know, I, <laughs> I have, if I may, cite my own tweet. I tweet, <laughs> I feel like this really encapsulates my whole mentality when I was devising this podcast, unbeknownst to myself. Which is, I tweeted something like, Rasputin was Russian. He was a peasant. I will not rest until I tell his tale as I've learned it through this book I'm halfway through. That really was just it. I thought I want, and then I thought, why? I don't know why. I don't know why that was my impulse. My impulse to make it a podcast was just that I couldn't force my husband to listen to me as much as I needed him to about the things I was reading. But then the other thought that finally pushed me to do this, because this was something I thought years ago. And I think I even said to you years ago, we should do a podcast together about books. And then I was busy finishing my book and we, it just wasn't really pursued. And, um, I was looking at specifically book podcasts and I just felt like, and this is no disrespect to any of them, that they were, um, there was a predictability and a kind of a routine there, which was that the same names kept showing up again and again and again. And it's certain authors who kind of have that, um, marketing budget. Yeah. Marketing. Yeah. It was, it's like with marketing cycles or they're writers who have a certain degree of visibility plus prestige. So they get picked a lot for a lot of things because they're from, you know, familiar names, but also respected names. Or and I just thought that's fine, but it felt so limiting to me and kind of boring. And I thought, I don't want to, I don't necessarily want to hear from these people. They're, they're, they're relentlessly, uh, enlisted in this, right? So what about all these other writers? I know my friends, these writers and these readers. And I know that they have really fun things to say about books. And then I thought, I just don't ever want there to be a promotional aspect to it. So they're not going to talk about their own books. I don't mind if somebody wants to come on around the same time they release their own book, but I just thought, I don't want, it to yeah. be this fawning thing of you know or like, like publishing driven yeah exactly like as critics sounds more pompous than i meant it but like yeah you know we make we make product <laughs> like we you know we make the product and we work within a system and we've got a certain kind of independence that definitely keeps us sane on the day to day so i don't know i feel like there's something nice about, you know, I'm perfectly happy just talking to a small number of people in my life that I find interesting and, and wish to, um, wish to corner, but secretly I do have a little bit of a love of communicating. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad it, you just admitted it early on. Secretly. Transparently. Secret. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is, 
So I want, I want this to be a space where people can be haters and it's just an opinion and it's not an official opinion and it's not a formal statement by some publication. And, and also we can hate on writers who aren't alive anymore. We can hate on books that are decades old and we can, you know, complain about stuff that was just published. I just, as a reader and as someone who's friends with a lot of other readers, this to me feels like the real way we engage with what we're reading. And, you know, book criticism only captures a little bit of that, which is fine because it has a, you know, a specific function. But I like that it doesn't have an exclusively promotional angle or point or it doesn't have to coincide with any publishing uh, schedule. Other things that recommend this podcast are going to be lack of frippery. I'm not going to make any comments about frippery culture merely observe that we're going to keep it to a minimum and no ads well yeah that's one of them isn't it i can't wait we've already had some conversations as you've uh, i know already mentioned and they're so fucking clever and the books that they talk about are so great and um we don't want to give anything away but there's been loads of common threads running through and authors that we figured out that there's the seat we've all been nurturing secret passions for <laughs> in our little hearts and all you have to do is talk about talk about them once and then it turns out you're not alone yeah it's been a beautiful experience and i'm i'm excited to invite the larger world into our um little enclave of readers and reading writers but on that note joe will you tell me what you've been reading lately I have been reading a book called Tomorrow, Perhaps the Future, Writers, Outsiders and the Spanish Civil War by a person named Sarah Watling. Um, and it is a basically, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like what the, the, the title explains. And it, it's about like a cohort of women writers, including Sylvia Townsend Warner, who wrote The Corner That Held Them, which is like, a really great kind of uh, semi-satirical novel about nuns, medieval nuns, really great. Um, Virginia Woolf, a bunch of other people who I had, like, not heard of before. But, yeah, basically, like, about why tens and tens of thousands of international, you know, r regular people, but also people with, like, political consciences that were activated by the Spanish Civil War and by, like, what it represented, you know, like the incursion of fascism and Spain, you know, being like abandoned by its allies, whatever. There's lots to know and lots that I do not know, which is partly why the book is so fascinating to me. But yeah, he's essentially, what I love is the way Watling begins with, actually, yeah. can I just read you, I'm going to read you the first um, paragraph of, I think, I guess it's the introduction. So it's called No Perhaps, No Tomorrow. Put it this way, an old woman sits alone in a darkened movie theatre and cries uncontrollably. That there is no one seated nearby she considers a mercy, because the room's night-like privacy is necessary. The film has triggered her memory so intensely that she feels both as if she's dying and that she is already dead. On the screen she watches the most important experiences of her life flicker by inexorably, and admits to herself that that is what they were. There is no sign of Josephine Herbst in the footage, and yet it shows her most alive. It shows the time when everything mattered. After the screening, she will sit in the lobby and smoke for a long while, 
mulling over the ways in which history has disappointed her, which is another way of thinking about what her own life has failed to deliver. While she sits there gathering herself, she is also sobbing over lunch again in Toulouse in 1937, just sitting there, ridiculous, weeping over an omelette her starved stomach is hankering for. Okay, that's the first two paragraphs. Um, I love that. I love the idea of beginning a an historical inquiry that relates to human beings and their feelings, and like, why did these people feel so strongly in what direction when? She begins it with right, like it's not regrets, but it's like the contemplations of an old older person looking back on their life and like take you know having the confronting the narrative <laughs> i guess as it were and how like simultaneously like painful and kind of exultant those like acts of remembering are and i thought, thought that was just like a really nice way to begin a project that is right it's about like recovering historical actors that have been historical actors i hate that phrase i don't know why i said it like Recovering people whose right political careers, like Sylvia Townsend Warner, she's been less well known. Uh, certainly, I didn't know anything about her politics for that, and then for her kind of like gentle fiction, um, which is kind of like Barbara Pym like. Um, right, so it's kind of a way into you know this war, which is obviously has like such a rich, unusually rich literary and kind of like artistic history accompanying it various people who like came as volunteers to the conflict and then who wrote about it or who wrote during it and I just think it's a delicately constructed way into something that is fascinating so complicated that I've never really known where to begin and I love the cover image which is an image of a kind of vital looking young woman um with one hand behind her back and then she's kneeling on one knee and then the other knee is like at 90 degrees in front of her and she's leaning on her knee and like pointing a gun and let me look up the credit is republican militia woman training outside barcelona august 1936 by gerda taro don't know if i'm saying that right it's a black and white image and I guess like photography of that era and conflict is sort of iconic as well. But I've never seen this and I've never seen... Maybe it's just because she's wearing such amazing, like really nice shoes. Oh, the shoes are incredible. Yeah. And she's hitting this pose, which looks like, doesn't it look like a kind of Helmut Newton? Um, I was just about to say, like, it looks like it could be in a fashion magazine. Right. Really, like the cut of the pants and the shoes and like her hair and like... Yeah. Even the way she's holding the gun, which actually to me looks like it's not the way you should hold a gun, but I don't know. I mean, I have, yeah, like uh, that type of gun. I don't know. It's well, she really, I love it. I don't know how to hold a gun, but yeah, she could have just shown up that day though, couldn't she? Everyone starts somewhere. There's no shame in not knowing how to hold a gun. <laughs> so yeah, a strong recommendation for this. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess she does kind of contextualize, I think, why... It's interesting to see at what times people have felt like it's a you're with us or against us vis-a-vis -vis fascism um, and like when people drew lines and said you know can't be like distanced or make like jokes or whatever because like we're all complicit in this and she's basically kind of like drawing some 
parallels to people's like political conscience, I think, activating in our own time of uh, intensity. How did you find this book? I think you should check it out. You'd like it. It was on the... It's published by Knopf, and I guess I was just like looking at all the various nonfiction stuff uh, coming out, and actually, I don't want to take credit for it, because maybe it was just like a, a really amazing publicist who did um, their job really well and like found it and sent it to me. I'm curious, do you have clear like categories in your reading, like work reading, non-work reading, or do you not? For sure, I have books that I have to read because I agreed to review them. And sometimes I still don't fulfill my promise to review them, frankly, even after I've read them. Um, That's good. You don't have a strong sense of obligation. I have no sense of obligation. Like for anything, anywhere, it's a I have been criticized for that very thing before. Um, It's kind of that is an extraordinary personal strength (laughs) that I think universally admirable. Um, Yeah, yeah. Maybe unless you're someone I owe something to, um, and then you just despair. Uh, Yeah, that's true. But like, if you just owe people a book review, like, what's going to happen? Right, right, right. That hopefully no one is put in too terrible a position because of that. Right, exactly. Like, oh, I'm going to break your legs because you didn't file for book forum in time. Um, But I did want to, I actually did have, speaking of like categories and books and stuff. So the book I wanted to talk about today is actually sort of two books, maybe, if I can get away with it. But I had, I wanted to ask you first, genuinely, like when you hear of something and you're like, you hear that it's a bad book, what do you imagine? Like, what does bad book mean to you? <laughs> bad book to me bad book is fully unsurprising but then again because yeah Lola and I read a lot of the same crime fiction in like high volume so we have a kind of like shorthand with each other that she has kind of derived from this one book blogger on Goodreads I've never used Goodreads ever but maybe called Pink Balaclava anyway they have like impeccable taste impeccable and so she'll be like, oh, you can stop reading She's Not Sorry because it, like, really drops off in the third half. Like, it turns out to be uh, whatever. You know, and because sometimes books, you know, whatever it is, like, it turning out to be, like, just a dream or something. Obviously, what's the current version of, like, it was just a dream? Like, uh, when something is, like, so cliched that you feel insulted by it, that to me is, like, the definition. The most universal definition of something that's poor. I don't know. What, what about you? I think, well, I've been realizing, because I've been reading a lot of books lately that I, in my head, I thought of as bad books. I hadn't read them, right? It's just they have a reputation where in my head I'm like, that is a bad book. And in reading them, I've realized that I was using bad. <laughs> I thought bad meant, <laughs> I thought bad meant not good. Do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't really think bad meant bad. I kind of thought bad meant it's not good. But I realized I'm like, oh, there are really bad books that get published, like books that kind of shock me because they feel so amateurish or, you know, like corny or whatever it is, where I'm like, oh, I didn't really understand what a bad book was until I started reading them. But I feel like it's an important step in my education. Like, I'm glad I'm doing it. But one of the books I read, the book I want to talk to you about, I read The Bridges of Madison County. Do you remember this book? Uh, no, I've seen the film. Isn't that, that the one where um, Meryl Streep is Italian? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And she's called like Norma or something. What's her name? Francesca in the book. Francesca. <laughs> Norma. Um, yeah, wow. Okay, so that, I had a lot of feelings about this book growing up because I guess the movie is constantly referenced in, or was constantly referenced in the pop culture of the 90s as like the ultimate thing that women are interested in. Yeah, I started reading the book and I thought, like my expectations of the book were that it would be bland. Kind of like you said, we were like, there are no surprises. You know, I thought, oh, this is going to be really bland and kind of trite, whatever. And it was actually so much worse than that. Um, Mm. And pretty quickly, like some problems started arising. I bookmarked some things to read to you. So when you, I was saying that like, the bridges of Madison County symbolizes something. So obviously it symbolizes like ultimate chick flick, but it seems like it also in book form, right? It, the pure unadulterated conventions of romance are there yeah, and not being like responded to in any way. They simply exist as the primary thing. So yeah. And the premise, I don't know. I think the premise is fine. Like I like the premise, which is that what if these two like middle-aged people she's like 45 maybe i think she's like early 40s and he's a little older so what if they have this chance encounter and they fall very deeply in love and this is like the major love affair of their life right so i don't i love it you know what i mean like no problems there got it and i've been reading a lot of romance lately too written by women Mm -hmm. i hardly ever read books written by men and bridges of madison county is written by a man and it's fascinating to see, like, his version of this hot guy who is actually a lot like, it's a lot like The Notebook, which came out later, also written by a man, Nicholas Sparks, right? There are, there's a lot of overlap. Who wrote Bridges of Madison County? Robert James Waller. Robert James Waller. And this was his first book. Wow. So he really came out the gate, didn't he? He did. So this okay, look, on page seven. (laughs) This is on page seven. This is where I start realizing I'm like, oh, oh, I I (laughs) underestimated this book. Okay, so he's he has this woman he hooks up with some at home, the main character, his name's Robert. Um, she's she'd been around two marriages, worked as a waitress in several bars while attending college, right? So he's saying she's a big slut. Invariably, after they completed their lovemaking and were lying together, she'd tell him, you're the best, Robert. No competition. Nobody even comes close. So already I'm like, this is a problem. Like, we're already getting into what in my head I think of is like the author writing their own fan fiction. Do you know what I mean? Like writing their own fantasies. Right, and it's because it's, like, trying to, like, throw the perspective, right? And it's not the same thing as, like, empathy, right? It's just, like, the imaginary interiority <laughs> of another person. But it's, like, it's fan fiction in that it's, right, it's imagining that it's creating the human being on the other side of the, like, outer shell that you want to fuck. <laughs> but then on the other side, the other it's just, like, this complete other fiction that... I mean, it sounds like it's very much like movie pastiche, not pastiche, like, you know, unintentional pastiche or whatever, like tropey. It's just kind of like, it's such a clumsy, it's such a crude idea of like, how can I convey that this guy is like the ultimate 
You know what I mean? Like, he's, like, the ultimate man. He's somehow kind of vaguely mystical. And he is, like, non-materialistic. And he's been in the army, but he's not violent. And he's just, like, so special. Okay, I misunderstood. I thought it was supposed to be making fun of her, of her being such a big slut and lying. No, no. Okay. <laughs> No, this is we how can cut that every bit. woman he... Fu- you don't understand how many insane scenarios somehow this guy... Even though we're also supposed to think he is kind of chaste, he somehow has had sex with so many women who are like, you're like a god to me, like a sexual god. And so, and there's this passage, okay, to him, intelligence and passion born of living, the ability to move and be moved by subtleties of the mind and spirit were what really counted. That's why he found most young women unattractive, regardless of their exterior beauty. They had not lived long enough or hard enough to possess these qualities that interested him. So... Hell yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, right on, brother. Right on. Say it's it exact- What it reminds me of is when Patricia Cornwell, in her crime novels, when the medical examiner Case Carpetta is describing herself or like no Patricia Cornwall is describing Case Carpetta's appearance but she looks exactly like her and she's like a handsome woman with uh, blonde ash blonde hair feathering her face and she's like no longer in the first flush of youth but clearly in the prime of her life as a forensic pathologist you know and it like carries on like this in the most uh Right, like, how do I show, not tell, but in the most opposite of conceptually reversing that? Isn't it, to me, probably, like, the cringiest thing that ever happens in fiction is when a writer is basically praising themselves, where they have to say something like, oh, this poem is the most beautiful poem that anyone's ever heard. And, like, they wrote the poem. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm, Even when mm -hmm. I understand sometimes why it's, like, necessary for the plot, I'm just like... I don't think I could ever do that because it just seems to me like I'd be setting myself up for ridicule. Yeah, Yeah, but if you do do it about yourself, yourself, like Patricia Cornwell, there's a dignity in that. that. Whereas this guy, there's no dignity in whatever he's doing. There's zero dignity. And, And you can imagine, like, why a certain type of reader is just, like eats it up right the idea of like they don't feel great about themselves maybe they feel like they're too old whatever they feel like under recognized as like a sexual being or something and so reading something like that feels really good to them and the thing that kept coming up (laughs) when i I was researching this book was that like you know everyone knew it was garbage like it was universally like nobody was writing good reviews of this book but it it's it's like one of the top fifty like best selling books of the last century. Like it, it was huge. You know what I mean? It it was massive success, massive like bestseller many times over, bestseller right. like for A so many weeks. And this comes up with Colleen Hoover too. It's this idea that like bad books that are really popular are popular because they manage to be embraced by a market of like non readers. People who don't read. Mm. Oh, this is going to be like the book they read. The funny thing of what you just described, though, about, you know, why would somebody respond positively to this? And I think it's because you have like a really advanced now, but possibly somewhat abstracted view of 
the way that this works in the novel because I think it's just conventional morality, but like dressed up as a sexy guy, right? Like it's it's just like uh, you know, all the, the like straightforward instructions, like if you stay faithful and then you're middle aged and you're really beautiful, then like you'll be loved all the more. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's just the straightforward messaging, not like very well sublimated into narrative I think and that's why now it almost seems like avant-garde and it's directness or like why would this be even interesting to read because it's not like secondary in any in any way but I think that that's just the charm of it like I love Twilight for example like I love to inhale that kind of super popular crap stuff right like Colleen Hoover what's the name of the author of the novel Leanne, uh, that I picked up at your Leanne flat? Moriarty Leanne Moriarty. Yeah, it's so satisfying. It's like doing a, it's like doing a Sudoku. But you know, I know what you mean because I feel like I like reading a lot of books that are not especially well written. But but then I'm kind of like, oh, I, even I have my standards, right? Even when I just want to have fun, I have my standards. Do you seriously read Colleen Hoover? Okay. Now I think maybe I haven't read any Colleen Hoover. <laughs> well, we will. We'll get to it. We'll have a. We'll we'll read it for this podcast. We'll read Colleen Hoover. I read two of her books. I I would what, love. What are to her see famous books? React. What's that? What are her famous books? It ends with us. It's her most famous one. Veracity is also pretty famous. Um, it starts with us. Is also famous. What the hell? <laughs> I just realized this. The this character's name is Robert. The man who wrote it, his name is Robert. Uh, yes. the, I mean, it's like the degree of it's just like the artlessness is is like. And and I kept reading stuff where I'm like, why didn't a book editor editor just like strike this one line even? Because he'll always say something, and then he'll have like, oh, Francesca, you know didn't like the thought of him having been married before. She wasn't sure why. And then it's like three sentences saying why, which is, by the way, it wouldn't have been that hard to grasp anyway. But like, you know, and I'm like, why didn't the book editor just like take out that line? And then I'm like, but this book was massive. Like, do, did the book right. editor know something? Do you know what I mean? I guess it's just like, that's irrelevant because nobody is reading it that closely. You know what I mean? I think it's possible that now everything seems so... Actually, I don't know. Why don't you read some more of it? I'm curious to hear more. Read some more. Okay. The, the thing I'm going to give you more context of this. So my downstairs neighbor, my neighbors, who are two gay men, I'm always ordering used books. And um, I'm this, this one place I ordered from has very distinctive packaging. So I opened one of those packages because I was just like, oh, I'm always getting these books. And it was the Bridges of Madison County, and it wasn't for me. It was for my downstairs neighbor. So I like, wrote him a note, like, I'm so, so sorry. Like, I didn't mean to be, like, prying into your reading material. Like, I just get books all the time. <laughs> I didn't even look. I'm so sorry. I'm, And then I said something, like, I'm so happy to know, like, that there's a fellow, like, used book aficionado, whatever. So while I was reading this, as I got deeper in, I started getting really worried where I was like, what if he thinks that, like, this is what straight people are like? And I'm like, I want to go tell him that, like, we're not. And then I I also got worried. I was like, but what if we are? Like, there's this part when they finally have sex. Okay, I wrote a note so I could find it. This When they finally have sex. And if I'm... You tell me if you're seeing something I'm not. 
So she's remembering when they have sex. She remembered the dreamlike sequence of clothes coming off and the two of them naked in bed. She remembered how he held himself just above her and moved his chest slowly against her belly and across her breast. (laughs) How he did this again and again, like some animal courting right in an old zoology text. Hold on. (laughs) Moving his belly... No, sorry, his chest is on her belly and breast and goes and going around and around. He held himself against her, just above her. Oh, over her. And moved his chest slowly against her belly and across her breast again and again, like some animal courting right in an old zoology text. Like, (laughs) it's since been revised. Like... (laughs) I can't even picture it. Like, I can picture a version of it, but I'm like, that can't be what, like, he wanted me to think of. Maybe they're referring to, like, have, you know, old woodcuts. I, I don't know why I'm defending it. I mean... No, I asked you since... Cause I no, it's be, really odd. Stupid? It's really odd because, like, what is that supposed to be communicating? Is it the fact that... And is she thinking of it while she's having sex or, like, afterwards? This is her also, years later. And what I'm curious about is, like, how large are the circles that he's making? Me too. And also, again and again, like, (laughs) how long? Oh, also, when she's remembering him, she's looking at the spot where they danced, and then it says, you know, the feelings inside of her were overwhelming, and so she, they were strong enough that over the years she had dared do this in detail only once a year, or her mind somehow would have disintegrated at the sheer emotional bludgeoning of it all. And I just went, wow, okay. (laughs) Her mind would have disintegrated. <laughs> Wait, that's so funny. It's like, um, you know, if you like stare into the sun or like in the film Sunshine or whatever, you know, like. What is a good example? You know, if you get like exposed to something too much, then you go crazy. Yeah, I find that if I think about sex too much, my mind disintegrates. Right. Well, it's kind of like she's seems like she's going to some kind of like dissociative places for example vintage zoology illustration it was so hard for me not to text my neighbor and be like can i come down and talk to you about this book like i need you i need you to know that like we're not all like this um you know there's like worse things to think of straight people anyway i think yeah, you're right. You're right. We That's certainly the least of our crimes is having sex like we're in a zoology textbook. What kind of animal? You know? Not specified. Look, I mean, he is supposed to be like a leopard. They can, she compares him to a leopard a lot. Oh, really? You think they're having like face-to-face missionary leopard sex? <laughs> exactly. There's no way. <laughs> There's no way leopards have missionary sex. Like, I myself will go into the field to prove that. So with us today, we have Rachel Handler, who is um, a luminous wit and a fabulous writer, (laughs) features writer at New York Magazine, um, specifically Vulture. But um, your 
beat is pretty wide ranging, right, Rachel? I mean, I feel like you you do write a lot about culture, but you like you're that beautiful thing about your grandfather in law. You know, like they kind of yeah. I I think technically I'm supposed to write about culture and movies more specifically, but like I have a lot of freedom, especially because there's like different verticals within the magazine. That if I'm like, oh, I want to write you know, for example, about Bucatini or whatever, like that was very much not mm. my beat. And they were like, okay, sure. Like whatever. And you know, they're like, this is like the stupidest idea ever, but go for it. <laughs> so, so I wanted to, I actually gave this a lot of thought because I was on my honeymoon, which is humiliating, but true. And I was reading, I, I brought a bunch of books from Hazel, my friend Hazel Sills, and, but they were all really like, they were all good, but they were all very like, as you put it, Charlotte, all courant. And I felt like it wasn't necessarily like I didn't have much to add to the, you know, frenzied discussion about them. And so I was like, what is something that I, that I reread a lot? And I have like a couple of books that I return to kind of like every few years. And one of them is The Little Friend by Miss Donna Tartt. And I feel like for me, I, I, I first read it when I was, I think, like 15, whenever it came out. And I, at that point, I didn't know anything about Donna Tartt. I hadn't read the, I hadn't read the secret history. It just, I just kind of was like, oh, this looks kind of fucked up. It's about like a, a bitchy girl, which is like really my vibe. Um, and it's a mystery. It's like a murder mystery. She's solving her dead brother's or her brother's murder, like ostensibly. And, um, anyway, I, I loved it when I was 15 and every time I read it again, I like it, I think less and more <laughs> like, I kind of like notice its extreme flaws, but also really appreciate how just sort of self-indulgent and luxurious it is. It's just like, she'll spend like eight pages describing like a subdivision, you know, or like a dream that a character had. And I'm like, this is just so, it's like a 700 page novel. And at the end, spoiler alert, she does not reveal the murderer. <laughs> oh my God. That must've been so controversial. Cause I have not read this book. I have read the secret history. I know a little bit about Donna Tartt, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's crazy. And then after, you know, as I grew up, I read the rest of Donna and, and I really love the secret history. I reread that a lot too, but, um, this to me was just like, I remember reading it. It's kind of like when I saw The Shining at age 10 and I was like, oh, I didn't know movies were allowed to do that. You know, like I remember the scene with the like furry blowing the old dude and I was just like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> and that's kind of how I felt reading this book. I was like, I didn't know you were allowed to write 700 pages and then be like, actually, we don't know who killed the little kids. Bye. You know, <laughs> it just like blew my mind. <laughs> I love the this like peek into your lore where it's like the little domino as you watching the furry blowing an old guy in the shining and then like the biggest domino is like you becoming features writer for New York. <laughs> that literally it was like a seminal moment in my life. One hundred percent. My dad, we watched it and I remember afterwards he was like, Maybe you were too young for that. <laughs> this book is so interesting and I remember when it came out because I was a big teen fan of The Secret History. I don't know if you read it as a teen as well. But then people were kind of disappointed because, you know, she left it a really long time in between it. And I think me and my friends were a bit like, oh, this isn't sexy at all. <laughs> Although it's kind of sexy now, I think about it. Um, but yeah, so had you had read The Secret History first. No, I'd never. So I, oh, sorry, I came like said, totally yeah. blind into this book. I just read the back. I was a big, like, nerdy reader as a as a kid, and that's kind of all I ever did. And I didn't have any context for Donna Tartt at all. So to me, like, reading it the first time was really funny because I had no idea what I was getting into. And then now that I've read all of her stuff, and like her a lot, but, like, also understand it, that whole, remember that whole, like, is it art debate about the Goldfinch, like, five, 
or maybe 10 years ago. I don't even know when that was, but I just find the whole like conversation around her really interesting. I find her interesting cause she's like, she cultivates mystery and, and weirdness. And as, as you put it, Charlotte, her fuck ass Bob is amazing. To me, this book is, it was really badly reviewed. Like most people did not like it. Um, and it's just, I, I think because I read it first, I, I, I have this extreme soft spot for it. So as a kid, when you were reading it, what kept you reading it? Because it, it's, you know, it's a huge book, right? So, but you were into it enough that you were like happy to keep going. Or were you someone who was like, I'm going to finish anything I start? What kept me reading it is an attention span that I no longer possess. And the fact that I had no life. Um, I would say those two things were really, and also I, I again, I thought she was going to reveal, I thought we were going to get to the end and have it be revealed who killed Robin, who's the, who's, who's hung on the first page. You know, this little kid is hung in his own yard in the daytime or whatever. So I was really intrigued. And then I think it's, you know, it's obviously at the end, it's supposed to be sort of like this young girl's introduction to the cruelty of the world and loss of innocence. And that the moment when you realize that like things aren't fair and justice is fake and all of that. And I, I appreciate that now, but I remember at the time I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't not believe there's no answer. <laughs> it's really cheeky, isn't it? Because yeah. it's, pa- it's paced kind of thriller style, or mm-hmm. like a procedural, but obviously also with the kind of little girl investigating. Um, what's her name again? Harriet. Harriet, yeah. So Harriet's like, gets herself in all this other trouble, essentially, right? Because there are these like subplots and side plots. And um, one of my favourites of those involves um, religious snake handlers and snakes, which I think are really underused in fiction. But yeah, I'm really curious about like, was that part fascinating to you? Because it was fascinating to me. Well, so what's so interesting is I think when I first read it and when I kept rereading it, what kept me coming back was different each time. But now I'm reading it, rereading it this week. I was like, I love the, just, I love the early, it's kind of like Titanic where you want to stop watching it at halfway through. It's like the first half of the book is so warm and cozy and you're really, really descriptive about these sort of like archetypal, like Southerners with this sprawling family and all this depression and Gothic darkness. And, um, you know, this girl is like such a little cunt and I love her and she's just so like rude and pisses everyone off. And, um, that first half is so delicious to just sort of get lost in. And then when they get into the stuff with the the snakes and the, like the meth heads and the, the, it's like so offensive, by the way, like this is like the most like classist. I know it's supposed to be like close third and it's her perspective, but you can feel Donna just being like, ugh. (laughs) It's very disdainful and like arm's length, isn't it? And it kind of goes back to, right. Like kind of every, the characters was in the goldfinch and the secret history, right. They have these like, often kind of boring middle class or like lower middle class lives that they're like trying to detach from in favor of the the gorgeousness of rich people um but that's so interesting because i loved all that bit all that stuff because i love very like highly stylized offensive crime yeah (laughs) Yeah, see like i think i liked it i like it less and less because i can just feel her own disdain for anyone who's not like her sort of dripping from the pages and it's just not that fun to read so I, I, I would say like maybe ha- literally halfway through, it's like they, sometimes she switches to their perspective. And it's really interesting because they like speak in weird dialects, very offensive dialects. And then, but then when you're in their minds, in their perspectives, like she writes uh, sort of normally and you're like, it just does not track or make any real sense. Uh, so I, I really like the first half a lot. And then the second half, I'm kind of like, all right, I, 
I'll just stop reading and, and just leave. I'll stay in like Harriet's childhood before she loses her innocence. <laughs> How old is she by the end of the book? Does it cover like a lot of time? I think it's like a summer and she's 12 in the, in, in the whole book, I believe. And she sort of goes on this, as you put it, Joe, like a hero's journey to solve her brother's murder and gets in, you know, she ends up like trying to, trying to implicate this, these like local white, white trash, like podunks or whatever. She, she, she basically fails to actually get the answer. And it's very, it's very devastating. There's an adventure in a, like, um, a grain tower. Right. I think what you identify as being so compelling about, right, like the early part of the hero's journey aspect is it, right, it's so sensory, like you're kind of smelling everything mm-hmm. and feeling the timbre of people's voices and like getting to know specific trees and animals and stuff like that. But weirdly, that is also re- why I really like the second half, because it has these dis- really close up descriptions of handling snakes that I like never want to get close to in my life. <laughs> like the smell of them specifically. Yes. And I've always wondered what they smell like and feel like to people who like live and work with them. Wait, when did you um, read this? Because you have such a vivid memory of it. Actually, it wasn't that long ago. I reread it for when Lily Annolik, I don't actually know how you pronounce her last name, did the Bennington podcast, which was, in retrospect, really like a lot of fun. It's about Bennington College and, um, right, Donata, uh, Brett Easton Ellis and their mates running around this, um, like, beautiful campus, and basically what they were getting up to and why they love each other so much, and, like, why Donatar is so controlling, essentially, is what, like, the kind of emotional story behind it is. So I read it then, because I was like, oh, this one didn't really appeal to me, because I was like, it reminded me of a, like, Mill on the Floss, you know, kind of young girl's tragic story, yeah. and I was like, I don't know if I can handle this, because the goldfinch is incredibly upsetting. Yes, it is. Um, but it was worth it. Do you, it was worth it. Charlotte, yeah. have, you, have you read either of those books, either of her other books? Just the just the secret history. I haven't read anything actually. This podcast is for me. I'm trying to pick my first book. I'm gonna read. No, I've read the secret history. Um, and I just, but I I like your point. I don't know if there's. It feels like it would be very convenient to have a single word for the type of book that you're reading it and you see its problems and you see things happening in it where you're like, I don't really understand why this was allowed to continue like why didn't an editor intervene (laughs) (laughs) but then you're also like there's something really thrilling about it to be reminded of like oh right like when you're doing something creative like this you can do whatever you want like you can write eight pages about a subdivision and somebody can be like I don't think this should be here like this isn't that interesting and you can be like too fucking bad like it's going in and I, lo- I love having that relationship where, some, like, some of my most powerful relationships with poets, writers, whatever, as a reader of them, is when I hate them and hate yeah. them and hate them and hate them. And then all of a sudden, like, I, lo- I love them. You know what I right. mean? I get fully, like, in the cult. Yeah. And I'm like, I get it. I get the vision. I've been in their head for long enough, you know? Yes. And it's, like, so charming in its delusion. And it, there's so much confidence. There are parts that are genuinely incredibly written. Although it's funny because reading the reviews, like, people were so mean about it. They were like, this is written, like, terribly. And especially about the goldfinch. You remember, like, people were like, this is not literature. Like... Right. I feel like that was an aspect of wanting to punish her for the secret history because the secret history, right, is kind of 
on its face, it feels like a really deep, complicated, like E.M. Forster novel. And then when you reread it now, the fonts are like a little bit bigger than you remember. I, if you know what I mean. Yes. <laughs> Who is the little friend? The whole the whole title hinges on a sort of throwaway remark. I mean, can I get like, can I reveal what happened? Yeah. So Harriet gets Harriet becomes convinced that. Um, the person who killed her brother was his friend, his little friend, um, Danny Ratliff, who's now an adult because he was killed when Harry was a baby. And she sort of like stalks him, you know, through the, on the wrong side of the tracks through town, whatever, to tries to like kill him with a snake. Uh, they end up having like an altercation mm-hmm. in a water tower where she thinks she, dr- she drowns him because she's been practicing holding her breath the whole book, like Houdini, just like, you know, coincidentally <laughs> all been there. I actually was like really lo- much, very much like this as a kid. Like I would create these dreams for myself that were not real and just sort of follow them to their, to a frightening end point and then be like, Oh my God, I made this all up. Like, what am I doing? I really <laughs> thought I was like a local spy. Like I really had convinced myself. I have, I still have my Harriet the Spy notebook where I wrote like these observations uh, about my neighbors, but they were all like clearly made up. Like I was like, Mr. Levy, like RIP is um, looking at Torno in his office. And I'm like, did I really <laughs> see that? Was I just straight up lying in my own journal? Um, but yeah, so then at the end, her father, her absentee father, who's like in Nashville, like fucking his mistress, comes to see her at the hospital. And um, he mentions, he's like, oh, Danny Ratliff, like he was Robin, her brother. He was his little friend. And she, like her blood runs cold because she's like, oh, my God, they were friends. Like he maybe he didn't kill him. And that's the title. <laughs> Does it feel like really polished, even though it has these sort of like, you know, I don't know, me like hiccups or something? Like, does it feel like she like she labored over it? You know, when you read sometimes and you're like, oh, they really like, you know, like a lot of editing went into it or. To me, when I read her, I'm like, she worked her ass off on this and and did labor over it and then self-edited, but did not let an editor touch it. That's what it feels like. Like, it feels like she was like, it's done. You either publish it or fuck off. Because there are a lot, there's a lot of word repetition, which I'm guilty of. There's so many, like, extra adverbs. And it's just, it feels like someone might have been like, hey, (laughs) what do you think about um, cutting, like, half of the subdivision description? And she was like, absolutely not. Like, it, it, she could, she could use more editing, I would say. But it feels like she herself like thought about every word and was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> she takes herself really seriously, right? Like famously yeah. takes herself very, very seriously. Yeah. There's a little glint in the old eyeball with you Donna. Think? Don't you reckon? I mean, look, she's, her pictures, right. She's all like prim and buttoned up and she's got her little helmet and, you know, but she also like, she's wearing a cravat kind of, or like a tie, and it's a very, like, large collared shirt. It's not just, like, there is a, she is kind of, like, mannered and buttoned up and best mates with Brett Easton Ellis, which makes me think that in private she maybe doesn't take, do you know what I mean? Like, she obviously loves drama, um, and maybe, like, this all just, like, makes it more fun. Yeah, I do think there's, I think in her writing that's not necessarily apparent to me that there's, again, except for in The Secret History, um, that there's like a sense of like, you know, a sense of the camp about it. But there, I mean, there's so much pastiche. It's like Faulkner, Dickens, you know, like you can, you know what she's doing. It's like, 
it's definitely like an, not an imitation, but like it comes from a specific tradition that she's doing a great job of kind of like furthering. But yeah, I mean, probably like, and I, I, I was reading a bunch of like, there's like five profiles I've written about her and all of them are like, she can drink me under a table. So I'm like, okay, she must be fun. I like what you said about her being a relatable cunt because <laughs> she is, you know, like little girls are really fucking dark. I mean, in my experience of yeah, being same. one and being around them all the time, you know, like they torture each other, they kill worms with sticks, like, and they make things up, right? And like gossip between little girls as well, and maybe like adults and teens, whatever. Like a lot of it is about like invention and storytelling and stuff. Totally. And I think that's really what appealed to me. I was always looking for books about girls who are obsessed with death because I was obsessed mm-hmm. with death and cemeteries and so morbid. And I, and my family was kind of like, all right, like you need to, you need like an outlet for this. And so I was really into books like this, but there were so few that were, that were this well done. And I do think a lot, I do think the whole like focus and obsession with like strong, messy female characters has like sort of ruined that, that whole tradition. Like, I don't think when Donna was writing this, she was thinking, I'm going to write like something for the for the culture. Like she was like, no, I'm going to write, I'm going to write, you know, what the fuck I want to write. And it just happens to be this little bitch who's like, you know, insane. And reading it now, I'm like, I really, you don't see it a lot anymore. I mean, you do, you see it in like, like I just read Big Swiss. It's about like so many modern books are that I love about like a messed up woman in her thirties who like destroys her (laughs) life uh, in a comic way. And I thought it was great, but I was also kind of like, there's always a sense of like, how do I put this exactly? Like, I feel like with, with Harriet, there's almost nothing redeeming about her and she doesn't, um, sort of like clean up her act, quote unquote, at the end. Like she's just like done something terrible and has to live with it. I have a kind of a theory about this. Okay. My theory is that people who like have a lot of privilege misunderstand like what is interesting about being having privilege especially like cultural privilege and so you know there's endless entertainment about people dealing with the fact that they're not special (laughs) when they're like 35 or whatever you know I'm being like oh I had to go from the special princess to like being a part of the world that seems to me like the central plot of like a lot of like coming of age stuff um But to me personally, like what I love to read about is the things that, I don't know, various types of aristocrat or whatever take for granted, which is like, what do you eat for breakfast? Like, what are the forks like? Like, what does it smell like in your garden? Uh, Like, what does your washing powder smell like? Like, you know, that kind of stuff. And specifically, what I want to know about is like, what kind of liberties were you given as a kid? Like, how did this shape your mind? So partly that is why I think that people don't like introspecting about that stuff because that is about really admitting that you're never going to come to terms with, <laughs> with your social political origins or whatever. That's um, so good. I love that. That's so true. And I think that's why this book is so fun because, or like so fun to read because it really is like, here is what the laundry smelled like. Here is this, what I had for breakfast. And it's, it is fascinating because it's so, it's right. so foreign to, like you were saying, it's so foreign to my upbringing as well because I grew up like in the most Jewish town on earth outside of like as a Jewish girl, like this book is so um, goyish to me. It's like, it's, it's feels like so, 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 so different from my life that it's, especially as a kid, I was like, whoa, I did not know that people, that she went down this way. <laughs> Just generally curious before we go, how you both, do you think that the gold, like, 
I want to engage in that debate quickly from your guys' perspective. Like, did you like the goldfinch and is it literature and what does that mean? Like, that's the one question I had for you guys. I really think that if it was published under a different name, then it would have been received as, like, an interesting novel of contrasts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but because she's so withholding and... But what she does is not crazy or outlandish she just kind of like symbolizes too much somehow totally and i also think she gets so much because she takes so long and because she refuses to give much of herself in the publicity process like she really she really pisses off like the male critics of the world specifically like those are the ones who really went after her on this one specifically do you two Um, think she's written her best book already or do you think it's like to come i don't know if she i to me, her best book is still The Secret History. Like, I think that one is, is the best. You know what I love about that book? What? That bit where, you know, where he stays at university over winter break and then he, like, freezes after death in the attic. It just seems <laughs> so uh, melodramatic and almost silly. I don't know if I'm, like, reaching for the camp, but where there is none. I don't think you are, because this is a book where she, like, invented twin cest. Like... Queen, queen, queen. <laughs> like for me that's all you need to, if you've invented a greek sort of like mythological bacchanalian fall core you know like novel with twin cest <laughs> what more what more can we ask of her she i don't want anything else from donna like she has done it although it is 10 years wise it's time for her to release her next book I think the, <sighs> the Secret History feels kind of like a perfect book to me. Like, yeah, I, I just, think it, it feels, like, so assured and accomplished. It just feels like the vision of that book is so complete and coherent within itself. I used to think that the whole, like, professorial surrounded by books, like, mystique thing and those relationships, like, I did find them very interesting. They're more interesting when you're the student. But I also, like, I love, you know, like, the Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, those kind of stories about, like, ambiguous tutorship you know it's like really on the nose about a really about like a niche personality type i see it's on the nose but i'm like did she like invent the nose like to me it feels so like you know what i mean like she sort of started a sort of not she obviously she's playing with with archetypes and whatever but it feels like you're saying it feels so of it's like it feels so itself in a way that i'm like were people at least for me, that was my first introduction to that kind of mm-hmm. mythology. I, I just feel like it's kind of like, I don't know how to explain it. When I say it's perfect and I'm like, it's the best book I've ever read, it's itself all the way through. Like if you were to cut it, you know what I mean? There's like <laughs> no interruptions. Like it's like cutting butter, yeah, yeah, right? It's like, yeah. it's a stick it's of butter all the yeah, way through. Right, yeah. yeah. Everything is really tied up in a bow at the end, which is satisfying yeah. and generous. It is. We're, yeah, we're, well, we're, then apparently she was like, I'm never going to do that again. That's what I mean. I'm like, damn, this is so... I think that's why people were mad, too. They really wanted a satisfying conclusion, and it is not satisfying. Yeah. But then people didn't love the, like, well, here's, here's who blew it up, like, thing either. So she can't win. If that's not the female experience in publishing, I mean, damn. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reading Writers. If you have any questions, requests, or thoughts about what we're reading, you can share them with us at readingwriterspod at gmail.com.